This podcast contains conversations about trauma and other challenging subjects and may be sensitive for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. If you need resources to get help, please see the show notes. You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from drawntoastory.com. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change, with a particular interest in identity, belonging and expat life. This podcast is about the lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. It's a place to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. And that's you included. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Laura Anderson. I first met her in 2018 at the Families in Global Transition Conference, where she gave an amazing talk. You know, the kind where you can't just walk out of the room afterwards, you have to go and meet and talk to the person. (laughs) She had that impact on me then. And she still kind of does, if I'm honest. I've invited Laura today to talk about transracial adoption. We know that the importance of inclusion and awareness of race disparities in society, in the workplace, in schools, in all our environments, is nothing new. There's often a public discussion around it. But like with every subject on this podcast, I'm interested in the parts of the conversations and the discussions that we don't see. That is, unless they're actually part of our own lives. Dr. Laura Anderson is a clinical child and family psychologist who has worked with children, adolescents, adults and families for over 20 years. She is licensed in Hawaii and California in the US, and her areas of expertise include school-based behavioural health, the assessment of children and adolescents, support for adoptive families, support for gender expansive youth and their families, and parenting neurodiverse children and teens. Dr. Anderson has lived out of the United States on several occasions, and is currently based primarily in Hawaii. She provides video health services to members of the expat community. And for both personal and professional reasons, Dr. Anderson is passionate about supporting children, teens and families around the globe. So without further ado, welcome, Dr. Laura Anderson. Thank you for joining me today. Wow, Kath, thanks. That's uh, it's a Honor to be here and um, similarly excited our paths crossed and keep crossing. Yes, <laughs> it's good. It's good stuff. Right. I get there's so much I want to talk to you about. And I in preparation for this, I had a bit of trouble trying to work out where to start. But I figured that it's what I would say is for me, the great thing about you is that you have all this professional experience, but you also have the personal experience of transracial adoption and you get both sides of it so can you tell us a little more about your family life just to give us some context of of the position that you're coming from sure yeah and and you'd think you'd think that the professional background would help with the tough stuff (laughs) (laughs) in theory it should on a good day it feels like it has but um yeah no definitely Let's see. It start. I, I can go way back without going too far back. I have okay. been doing, uh, uh, in a nutshell, so I'm the white adoptive parent of a black child. It was an international adoption. And I grew up in Maine uh, in the U.S. 
which is like whitey white white spill <laughs> and had had very little exposure cross racially, although you know had had some. And then I went to college and had the my mind just blown wide open, um, listening and learning from other folks' experiences. And I was learning about it in the classrooms and. I volunteered at a residential setting for adolescents and, and just got this, just literally my entire worldview got knocked on its rear. And I had this really painful and raw awakening around race and power and privilege and was so deeply from like, you know, later start than many. And then it started when I was 18, but sort of deeply in these conversations about race and anti-racism and, and whiteness. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I lived in South Africa during Mandela's elections and taught, uh, in the townships around Johannesburg. And that further in mm -hmm. I was, where I, when I was first living there, I was like the only white person in a many, many mile radius. Mm, complete um, role reversal. <laughs> totally. And another layer of like, uh -huh, uh, and mm. yet, and still in a place of privilege as the only in those, that situation. Um, but that changed the course of my life forever and my interest in race and race relations just strengthened. Um, and I continued to, you know, focus on learning about cross-racial work and racial sensitivity and mm. all these things. And so when I started the journey and made the decision, which wasn't an easy one in some ways mm -hmm. um, to adopt transracially because of some of the things we'll talk about today, I sort of felt like I'd had my sleeves rolled up already and... <laughs> <laughs> And I'd had, I mean, I certainly didn't think I was a hundred percent prepared, but I felt pretty good about mm. the head start that I'd had in the, in the, in the way I had dived into wanting to understand race mm. and privilege. And it, it still um, hasn't, it still wasn't enough. I can mm. say. Mm. That was actually going to be one of my questions is how was your own lens being challenged? Like no doubt you've had to examine your own identity through the eyes of your child as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a very knowing kind of cough sound. <laughs> you know, and all, it, it, yes. I mean, I think I really thought I had kind of done a lot of the crying and a lot of the guilt and a lot of the, mm. the, you know, work, quote unquote, mm. around the reality, right? Again, I was raised sort of good, waspy, mm. you know, you get what you work for, the world is a, you know, your oyster, if you plan well, then things work out, to really being faced with the fact that there's just so much injustice, and then to watch the world respond mm. um, to both of us together, mm. Mm. and then into lots of other transracial uh, families, transracially adoptive families, there is an arc, you know, mm. I can say like when, when my child was little, um, lot, it, it's really, and, and I've lived in several different places. So we have lived in predominantly black communities in West mm. Africa. We have lived in predominantly white communities for a brief period of time in Maine. We now live in a very Asian Polynesian mixed place. And we spent years in Oakland, the Bay area, very mm. racially mixed. And so we've had <laughs> sort of a gamut of 
uh, of communities and the gamut of lenses responding to us as a family. Mm. And um, they, it's been pretty powerful. Mm. Um, Can you see any links in terms of how people respond depending on where you are? I mean, is there, can you make a broad statement about the way you're treated together depending on where you live? Yeah, I would say we had a lot, it's interesting. And in talking to other um, transracially adoptive parents about this who who see race and know race and talk about race a lot. Mm. What happened when our kids were young was that a lot of white people feel free to ask quite they make assumptions they feel free to make ask questions of me as another white person um they feel very free I mean I know you if you see a lot of this maybe I don't know to try to touch hair and skin in ways that my black friends parenting black children were like oh no 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 mm, mm. <laughs> white people do not come up to us Absolutely, in public yeah. And yeah. say those things as a family and intervene in, in you know, and, and like work that hard sometimes, but not with the frequency. I mean, fairly regularly, people mm. would have hurled themselves at my child to try to find a way to make it socially appropriate to touch his hair and mm. touch his skin. And mm. I would say things like it was really, in, there was this incredible, um, and this is mostly white people I'm speaking of now, mm-hmm. uh, the novelty, the like, <gasps> and they would make these statements, all black babies are gorgeous yeah I want to get me one literally I on a number a number Mm. how do you respond to something like that oh I was horrified Mm. um it took practice I mean sometimes Mm. I literally like and I have I mean I I do I'm I'm a bit outspoken as a baseline so (laughs) for me I you know I would you know, kind of step back and make mm. a face, hold my head sideways. Like, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. Mm. <laughs> Could what? And, mm. and really sort of stop and say, say things. There were several occasions when I had to, to be really direct with people. There was a woman crawling around. She was in her, probably in her sixties on the floor of a cafe. I was having dinner with a ca- at a cafe brunch and there was a little, they had little truck toys um, mm. and dinosaurs or whatever under the table for kids to play with and on a mat, like not right mm. under the table, but a little mat next, we sat next to the play zone and um, she was crawling on her hands and knees with the camera, shouting about how black babies are the cutest and trying to take a picture of my child at a cafe. Wow. Um, and I mean, you know, all bias aside, he is mm. adorable, but still mm. <laughs> like that was just- absolutely. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's ador- he is adorable. But, but do you think you, that, do you think the whiteness of your skin gave them permission to broach yeah. that line that they wouldn't with someone else? Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I know that people of color and black folks in particular, if we're talking about this, have their own I mean, people interact with black adults in in a in a different way. So I'm not claiming that any part of my burden around white people's issues is more challenging than mm. black parents parenting black children. But the thing that that people felt free to do, and they would a lot of assumptions, lots of questions was his mom on drugs, lots of assumptions that my child's birth mother was on drugs, lots of questions about that. See, because we're mm. there's an there's an intersection here, right? Because mm. at once people see two races. And in our particular case, it's fairly clear that we're an adoptive family, um, yeah. just based on our uh, racial cueing and features. Mm. 
And so then they, they have two races and it's adoption by instinct, you know, they sort mm. of know. So we have people um, come up to us all the time and say, you know, and, and literally, especially when he was younger, it's slowed down now as he's older. And this is often mm. the experience, you know, does he know his real parents? Does he know mm. his other family? Why did they, it's so sad they didn't want him. I mean, things oh. literally people have Which, said that Mm. And it, all that does is give away their own biases and what they're the language that they're using around those kind of conversations. The fact that they even approach you and will say something. Yeah. Um, I mean, I read um, there's an article in the BBC that I read um, several months ago about a Ugandan man who had adopted a white boy. And he said he had just assumed that he would be given an, an Afro-American uh, boy. He was quite surprised. Um, but he just decided that if the child needed to be loved, then that was enough. And he said there was one day that he was getting his son into the car and a woman came rushing up and asked where his mother was. Um, and he said, I'm his father. And she said, I'm going to phone the police and picked up the phone and was saying, there's a man, I think he's kidnapping this little boy. And when the roles are reversed like that, the imposition that people have and this kind of pernicious idea that they can ask is just, it still yes. horrifies me. Well, and the difference, too, is that there's a fundamental assumption that my child is is better off with me, that good things mm. have happened to me, mm. right? When you think about that scenario, that good things have happened to my child if he's with me, but something bad must be happening yeah. with yeah. this white child with a, with a Black parent. And th- there is a very subtle and not so subtle at times mm. sort of rescuing multiple people have white people in particular have commented on me doing God's work. Um, so there's an assumption, there's a savior rescue yeah. piece in there where, again, mm. my child has, you know, afforded me the incredible opportunity of being a parent and mm. I am forever lucky and changed. And mm. it's really yucky and hurtful when the trope of the lucky adoptee makes its way in day-to-day family life in terms of I mean, expecting a child who's lost a family to feel grateful or lucky that they got one. Mm. It's kind of twisted, really, isn't it? It's To know, to absolutely no doing of their own, to know of it, like, like literally the cards that life dealt them. Yeah. But it also shows how that whole thing of privilege and how, like, unless you're white, there's this disparity all the time and people just don't, stand a chance until like it's see the color of your skin make an instant judgment mm-hmm. and then that judgment is then verbalized without they're so confident in their privilege that they don't even potentially yeah. think that you might think differently or that they feel that your child should be grateful when yeah. a white child that you might have adopted wouldn't have been expected to be grateful all of that stuff it's so loaded right. with generations and generations of cultural social racist yeah. context yeah and they and then when they're so when they're little like the the arc is that there you get this weird novelty stuff and the white women would do the so cute so beautiful white men <laughs> would come up and do like try to fist bump my in my he's strapped to me mm. in my you know whatever it is <laughs> carrier and people mm. are like literally white men would be like what up doggy dog and try to go mm. into sort of you know black vernacular english stuff with him and tell me to get him out of the sun because he's overcooked like in a whole um, like several times people mentioned we'd maybe been out in the sun too long it's because just 
and and that people think that might be funny. It, it's offensive yeah. and just yeah. so so yeah. inappropriate. It's just yeah. outrageous. Then you ready for this one? Then no, I'm, gonna... I'm not. I don't want to know. <laughs> then I had. So here's so you get novelty, you get beautiful, you get you get drug mom, you get you get this this like trying to connect with exaggerated cultural appropriation language and posturing, mm. and mm. then when he was about eighteen months old, I had somebody make the comment that they'd been married several times but that all of their friends knew that they were going to have a black man before they died. Um, he was 18. And then the conversation started with, he's so cute. He's so cute. And then said, yep. All my friends know. And I was like, I don't, I don't even know what to say to that. Like I haven't. (laughs) And I'm his mom. Like I'm, Mm. I'm sitting there and like, literally, I knew, you know, and then they said that once you go black, you never like, again, like, quoting all these things that people have been like distally when when they're when they're access to what they think is black culture and what they think are black people is mm. media-driven and stereotypical and and limited by separation and mm. and um lack of contact and context and you just get a lot of knee-jerk stereotypical reactions but when it's your kid, I mean, it was just, so, so you get this whole novelty thing. And then, then as they move into early adolescence, many families, and it's already starting to happen with that, then you get the, um, watched in stores. Mm. Um, and, uh, recently we had an incident, uh, where my child, but we were at the beach and my child ran back to the, our vehicle, to, to grab something out of it. And again, an older white person stopped him and which wouldn't, it just wouldn't, this is a fairly rural, it wouldn't happen. Just wouldn't he, happen otherwise. And, no. and so you start to see. So then what happens at this phase is that kids often go through just wanting to distance, right? They're like, mm. oh, mom, like, can you stay in the car? Or like, there are lots and lots and avoid situations occurring. Because mm-hmm. mm. when I'm not with you, okay, there's still the safe. So it's weird, right? There's some mm. tension. They're like, hey, we're going to this group of people where you don't know anybody. Mm. You are a buffer for me. You, if you're with me, people aren't going to assume I'm, you know, breaking in. But with kids his own age and stuff and other places, he doesn't. He, he's like, I just don't want everybody to know, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I, I was reading something the other day about this that made me. I was going to ask you about like where do the lines lie with regards to privilege because I was reading about an interracial adoptee who was Korean American and she was talking about when she was a child there was a level of privilege in that she had an understanding of whiteness but Mm. as she got older the racial questions changed and when she went to university and college and she was away from her white family and she was really only then viewed as Korean, the comments were quite different. And someone else who had who was Chinese said the same thing. And it wasn't till they were kind of out on their own being an adult that they suddenly this, I mean, she said, I've never felt so Chinese. Like the the implication when you're with someone or when you're not with someone, how much that changes someone's identity in your in their eyes, not in yours, but but in their eyes. So where do those lines lie I mean how do you as a white woman how do you make sure that 
you bring up a, a child of color or a black child to, to thrive in that way. That's a very a delicate line, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I have so many thoughts. It's really hard. And I, I, you know, I wouldn't change my family for the world, but there are some days when my kid would mm. because of yeah. the hard parts uh, about it. And the, the fears that I have for him, I think how you do it. And I mean, I make mistakes mm. all the time. So I, I'm sitting here with the formula, but here's what I've learned. I listen to adoptees mm. first and foremost. So I center adoptees, adoptive parents too often set the tone, tell the story, are the center of the experience. And here I am telling a story, but hopefully one of the big takeaways today will be for folks who are curious about this to start listening to adoptee voices, to recognize some of the way we talk mm. about adoption or portray it in movies and books is so mm. hurtful um, to, to the actual experience. And, and I, so I, I listen to adoptees. I have connected with a lot of other um, interracial adoptees. We were speaking quickly before or some folks use the terminology mm -hmm. interracial adoption now um, and really listen to those mm -hmm. uh, folks who, you know, what their parents got right, what their parents need to do differently. And there's no singular adoptive mm -hmm. family journey, but there are some really clear themes. And one of the, um, the clear ones is to make sure that, you know, there's sort of a saying in the world of interracial adoption, uh, don't let your child be your first black friend. <laughs> yeah, that's very powerful. <laughs> in terms of like, yeah. you cannot communicate a love of your child as a whole person if they are not reflected in any of the other people you love. Um, and any of the, I think there, or, or kids read that mm. they see, it, they know it. Mm. And it doesn't change your lens just because nope. you have adopted a child of, a, of a, another skin color. You still have your white, your white lens that you've lived with for, I'm not going to suggest yeah. how many years, but how old <laughs> you are. But, uh, I would say a number of decades, shall we say. Um, but but you, you still have your lens and you're now having to view through a different lens, but it's still not the same lens that your child will be looking through. Yeah, no. And I, so I, yeah, I listen to other people. Mm. I believe them, uh, which is key because, mm. because I had to really relearn how I thought the world worked and I had to really accept that there were things I couldn't control or fix. I mean, most parents have to come to terms with the fact that they can't but they have a lot less control than they thought they were gonna have. <laughs> That's a general parenting thing, I think. Yeah. But uh, but the 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 racial pieces have just just there are things I cannot do. He, I must surround myself with people who can step in and talk to him. And he, you know, he has uh, you know aunties and uncles who are very that we joke all the time mm. about and 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 don't joke and and you know cry with about some of the things that have been hard and and check in around current events and and really model for him how wonderful you know amazing people have navigated this world in which they're treated so very differently and yet are thriving and have loving families and you know all of all of that mm -hmm. I think one of the key things that a lot of once white adoptive parents realize if they are open to it that the world isn't fair and that their kids will experience a lot of mistreatment in schools 
um, in communities, on teams, out in the world and life. Then, then it's like this light bulb goes on and then all they want to do is like panic and figure out how to talk about racism mm. and policing or racism and, and lose sight of the fact that we have to also connect um, our kids with mentors mm. and cultural pieces and value, you know, like exposure and celebrate thought leaders. Yeah. And because too often the pendulum goes from no conversations around race to panicked um, new and we're all, I yeah. was new and I still yeah. make mistakes, new conversations where it's, where it's overly simplified mm-hmm. racism pieces and yet doesn't leave room. If you're in a community where leadership doesn't reflect your child, where the people around your dinner table don't reflect your child, it, it's hard. Yeah. How are you going to make a difference so that they do kind of thing? Yeah. And, and so it's asking for help, asking for, you know, there are some resources I can mention at the end that just and finding other, I do think for me, I remember we connected with a, with a um, transracial adoption camp, but this is packed out of Oakland. They do great, great, amazing out of Emeryville. They do amazing work. And the first year we went, I thought, oh, it'll be so great for my kid to be mm. Uh, around a whole bunch of other kids who he doesn't have to answer stupid questions from and nobody's going to go, is that really your mom? That can't be your mom. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, he's, I tell about, talk about the questions I get. You know, my child has also gotten a ton of questions along those lines too. Somebody in first grade, somebody asked him how much he cost. <gasps> mm. Wow. Yeah. That shows, I mean, first grade, you know where that's coming from, don't you? Yes. Jeez. Yes. Wow. Yeah. No. I mean, it's 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 really unfathomable. I mean, it it, it like the layers of of mm. conversation and assumptions around uh, adoption mm. are, and so they're getting a ton of that. Again, they're also in the experience that you described too. There's a sense that there is this bubble that there is um, that that they're protected while they're under the bubble. They're being raised mm. by a parent, and then they go out into the world exactly as you said in college. Mm not only are they being read totally separately now as not Laura's child, you know, Oh, that's so-and-so easily identifiable in the community mm. or whatever. In the city. And also your role. I mean, we, we know about how in, in African American homes, there's always the talk, like it's yeah. awful, but the, the talk about how to, for your children, how to keep them safe and what to do if they're stopped yeah. by the police and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I've often heard over the years of people talking about, that horrible myth of when people say, oh, I don't see colour and Ugh. not understanding the implications of what that really is. But and then this idea that if we talk about race, we're going to create an issue. But that it's ridiculous because you teach your child how to cross the road safely. Like you don't create what it, all of these things we do, we do to bring up our children to prepare them for for life. And if a threat as awful as it is, but if it's a threat at the moment is that if you've got black skin, you're at greater risk of being stopped by the police or all of these awful things we read about, then surely that's just as an equal measure, an equal important part of you raising your child, dealing with that and, and being aware of that stuff yeah. in a way that you someone else might not be. Yeah, you have to know, and to do it in age-appropriate ways too, mm. right? My, <laughs> my, my, my son would probably say, like, I mean, and has said, I know, mom, I know, you know, <laughs> like, 
This is yes, yes, yes. You know, the, because we would, we would, and again, it depends different places we live too, right? So we um, you know, cities and there was disparity, there's gentrification, there was displacement. And that was very visible to mm. my child moving mm. around who appeared visibly to be struggling in parts of the Bay area. Mm. And, and so we started when he was, you know, whatever, seven or eight, you know, like, Hey, there's this thing called redlining and you know what banks wouldn't lend to people. And, and knowing that some of it would sound like gobbledygook a little bit, but, um, initially but what it does is it plants the problem where it lies it lies in the system yeah. it lies in the history and and then when they're little you can say like it's so silly and again because from the time he was three other kids were telling him he couldn't be the prince in a story or the princess in a story because his skin was black yeah and they you know lots of comments and questions about his body and so thing it's you know lots of people were taught um that skin color you know that you're active melanin mm, yeah <laughs> you know, exactly. like having conversations and it's not and i'm so glad that our family doesn't share those values but sometimes you're across people who say these these things because otherwise what happens uh is that then your child can't place the the stuff that is laid at their feet they when they interact with the people who are going to treat them as yeah. if they're more criminal or more threatening or or hypersexual yeah. or whatever it is then they they'll just be left with this icky feeling that they internalize rather than recognizing this is part of that systemic yeah. thing that shapes forces on me <laughs> it, it's completely separate issue but it just it it makes me think of being gay and you know when you've been discriminated against even if it's not overt you know and if you're growing up sensing that you've been discriminated against because of the color of your skin then that can be so destabilizing and and if there's no one there to actually say to you this is why it's happening doesn't make it right but this is why it's happening it then also i guess makes the safety of home much more important because you become the place of safety and the the, the place of honest conversations like with any child but but it's much more yeah. tailored towards race no i work i know i work with lots of uh transracial adoptive parents white parents and 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 that's the thing there's so many things that talking about race does it mm. establishes a common language with your kid it places the problem where it lies out in the world and in the systems and structures and it allows them to continue to talk to me. If you're being raised in a home where you're being told color doesn't matter, but you're walking through the all day with people responding. With horrible stuff happening. Yeah. Yeah. Then, then you don't, not only do you think it's crazy making, right? Not only do you think you are a problem and then you have no yeah. one to talk to the problem about because it's not supposed to be a problem. The main people that are meant to be your yeah. caregivers and guidance, it, you're getting mixed messages from you can't make it work out in your right. head. Well, and, and there's the thing, too, like with the, when you so when just at the same time that the world is moving into more of the these kids are bigger and black kids speaking specifically about black transracial adoption, black children in the U.S. are estimated to be four to six years older than their chronological age um, consistently in studies and stuff that they've done, interestingly enough. And so right about the time that you have your 10 or 11 year old kid moving around in the world um, and they start to become more of a threat, they're also going into to preteen like mm. I 
stuff. And this is when, you know, and, and again, the folks who've gone before me, adoptees and parents who have said, holy cow, you know, that middle school era. <laughs> yeah. and, again, and again, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm a clinician and I've been talking yeah. about this stuff forever, yeah, yeah. Like, whatever. But yeah, many of, the, of those of us who have sort of preteen age kids mm. are like, what? Because then they're trying to make sense of all of it. And then they're throwing up in your face that you're white. Don't yeah. And you're trying to work out what's teenage stuff and what's yep. real yep. issues that they're dealing with that other than just being a teenager. And and they will. And, you know, you hear intense things from lots of you. Know, that's not my they're not my family. That's not my, you know, it, mm. for extended white parents and family members or um, <laughs> my, my kid was mad at me one day for I don't know. I was going he was half joking, but not joking. But I was trying to get him to do some chore he hadn't done. And he was like, ah, you dirty colonizer. <laughs> <laughs> so now and I can chuckle where yeah. you know, some people might hear that and think, what? You know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, in yeah. my head, secretly I was like, yes, you know, <laughs> <laughs> he's paying attention. He yeah. has because he, ha- he, he is also going to have to have a place the same way, not the same way. Uh, well, the same way I needed a place. I mean, I literally cried. I mean, I was so mad and I cried and I fought with people. And I, mm. when I was figuring out all this stuff for myself, he's going to have to have a place where he can be mad about what he's learning. Yeah, absolutely. And allow that to come out because anger is yes. important. It needs yes. to be there. What you just said reminds me of there was an article in the Time magazine a while ago about a uh, written by a, um, a black, I think he was a, an, a kind of an older um, man, but he was, it, it was basically uh, talking about when he was a child as a black boy, he would go to school and his tormentors at school would call him the N word. And he said, the difference was that when that happens to other kids, and and he was um, in a a transracial adoption. Um, When that happened to other kids, they would go home and receive love and support from the parents who looked like them. And he talked about getting love and support from people who looked like his tormentors. And it was only then that he started to have to really look at how he felt about white people and how that then impacted his own identity. And were there good white people who were the bad ones like have you I was going to ask you if you handled similar situations but you kind of answered it before I even got well no and he we were so we had the good luck of being um we were visiting South Africa when the great misfortune of Nelson Mandela's death happened and but we were in country and we were not far from the location that there was a memorial and people were putting rocks and we would go regularly Mm. and just sort of um soak it soak it in and 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 my child was five and was asking questions because he was hearing all this stuff and I'm like well in the mm-hmm. old days white people and black people sort of explaining a part in five-year-old language couldn't live together couldn't go to school together white people thought that was right you know Nelson Mandela and and he listened very quietly and then the next day we were driving he was five and he took his thumb out of his mouth in the back seat of the car and he said mom if you were here before, do you think you would have been one of the good white people? <laughs> he was five at he's, that point. And he's I was a smart little kid. <laughs> <laughs> right. So he's listening. Mm. And I and I I cheered up and I was like, I like to think so, buddy, but this racism stuff is powerful. People learn their roles and their rules. You know, 
I'm always been kind of feisty. So I would like to tell you, yes. Um, mm. you know, but I was like, again, when people think they're not ready, he was already tracking these things and the, the pendulum will have to swing. I know he will go through phases where it's hard for him to be around white people and accept, you know, and, and because of exactly what you're saying. And when you're the person who has to figure out how to deliver messaging around race and racism and comfort and care when your child has been. I mean, my, there have been numerous occasions in which he othered and targeted mm. for his skin. And, and, and I was gonna say, and to not kind of gaslight him and just say, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean it or whatever. Oh, like that's you, you've, oh, you've got that's... to sit beside him in that pain and allow, acknowledge it and validate it because it is real. And that quote right there, adoptees, and I mean that 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 like, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean, oh, sweetie, I think they meant. And you know mm. what? I'll also say sometimes I hear kids, particularly in this age category, say stuff that they think is about. And in my head, I'm like, mm, I don't know mm. if that was actually. But but it's an interesting thing, right? I still mm. have to kind of make space because part of the pendulum, part of them finding their compass their antenna, you know, is, is going to be, they're not going to be a hundred percent right. Quote unquote, when they're figuring it all out, but just exercising the muscles to be able to say, am I safe here? Am I seen here? If that just happened, how do I speak up for myself? Do I not speak? When is it safe for me to speak up for myself? Yeah. When can I tag a parent in and when shouldn't I tag a parent yeah. in, you know? Also, if you've lived your life walking that middle line for him, yeah. those skills are going to become finely, finely tuned. And your his awareness of that is is going to be massive. As you say, if he if he's already got that at five and the comments that he's saying, yeah. then this is all for me at least, this is all the more reason that we need to listen to transracial adoptees and actually hear their stories because they it's lived experience they they're like experts at what these situations and scenarios are and we don't want to believe I think the other thing I did a I did a book chapter where I interviewed a bunch of white adoptive parents and many of whom have had a lot of the same we're you know part of an extended community that does a lot of stuff around race and Mm -hmm. anti-racism work and and that was also really interesting too because of the people who who understand race is important we also have this belief that it isn't happening in our closest circles, right? That like, yes, out there, white people have a lot of do- work to do with racism, but but my cultivated circle yeah, <laughs> yeah. be enacting harm on my kid in some way or another mm. on the schools I choose. And nothing, 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 at least in the US, and I'm, I imagine in many parts of the world, will point out the disparities in race and class and privilege and power like mm. a school search. Um, and trying to find places that are racially mixed and resourced and um, don't have records of exorbitantly higher disciplinary action against uh, kids of color or, yeah. or you know, um, special learning support services heavily mm. loaded with a few kids of color in the school. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. On that note, you've talked previously about the kind of post-racial vibe in international schools. And so I... Um, was talking at the end of last year about LGBTQ plus experiences uh, mm. for kids in schools. And I'm not by any means comparing the two with children of colour. But one of the things that came up in that, that I, it kind of sparked my thoughts about this was that um, there were reports that 
kids that identified as LGBTQ plus were finding it very difficult to be themselves because the international school system is all about diversity and allowing people to be who they are and celebrating diversity, that sometimes kids who were from other countries who uh, were discriminatory against LGBTQ plus people, they were feeling that they were having to almost accept their abusers for who they are because everyone was allowed to be different. Everyone was allowed to have their difference. How does that play out from a racial vibe in an international school? Does that exist where it's harder to call out racism or discrimination? I mean, this is probably more from your professional point of view than a, than a parent. It, it was interesting. I think, I mean, there are, there are truly beautiful, distinct things about the international school communities and absolutely things that I was thrilled to be able to offer my child mm. community and in the school. And one of the things that I heard a lot and still hear a lot, I work a lot in community is, is this, this assumption or this belief that folks whose kids go to international schools are sort of the new wave of progressive white Mm. uh, people who really don't see color, right? Like, it's like, no, 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 that's not an issue here because our kids are so worldly. We've come to respect and interact with so many more people of color than we would have back in, you know, where I'm from in Maine, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And and yes, yes, I did. uh, You know, yeah, there there were a, a lot of racially mixed groups and things, but there were also pretty clear messages in the school too, right? Teachers are mm-hmm. hired from, you know, white Western speaking countries mm-hmm. and not other, like in Africa, generally mm-hmm. not from other parts of Africa. Head teachers tended to be white and assistant teachers tended to be local. And my, and again, my kid as a very young child pick, picked up on that. Why are all the helper teachers black? Yeah, and interesting. The main teachers are not. Um, it's stuff like that that it was, and social groupings that happened and jockeying that people just didn't almost just assumed. So I would say there's this assumption that kids who were feeling othered a little bit because of their race shouldn't have been because these are these progressive, world changing international school so to some degree I think they, they were not taught to think about it through that lens. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it was just sort of like it must be something about you because it can't be that because here in this community we're beyond that we have you know distinct life experiences which have prepared us to be able to be you know respectful and yet again depending on where in the world you are and how things are set up there are still very clear <laughs> disparities between the yeah. school communities and the communities around who are of different makeups as well but also um being respectful and being aware is very different to actually actively doing something isn't it it's like the anti-racism work it's like that you you can say you're you're not racist but actually what are you doing to show that what what are you actually implementing to show that um you're trying to address a disparity that exists um That's how I kind of see it, really. No. And the other thing that's really interesting, too, and this is something I struggled with as an adoptive parent, is adoptees will talk loudly. (laughs) Not all of them, because there's no one story, but Mm -hmm. um, about, you know, consistency, change, community, belonging. And and, an expat life is hard for that. I mean, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of change and there's a Mm -hmm. lot of starting over. So in some ways, it's beautiful because... There's, and it's what drew me in to the community. I'm like, oh, there's all kinds of people who are trying to integrate 
you know, identities where here we're blended racially and we're, and we're going to meet people who are blended, you know, mm. you know, cross cultures, like, and, and there is a distinct identity that comes with being part of TCKs and that, mm. well, but, but there's a lot of movement yeah. and a lot of upheaval. And so it's not to say you shouldn't, if you're an adoptive mm. family move regularly, but, but I think that's another little, that is a thing about mm. adoption and, and, and the international community is, consistency, having places where kids do feel as if, I mean, yeah, there are pros and cons, feel as if they're, they're familiar, known and belong. And yet, you know, in the international world, you get um, from sort of the familiarity and not belonging. <laughs> yeah. 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 Absolutely. Like there's something that brings people together. Yeah. Don't that, really belong yeah, abs- other people who don't belong. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you all you all gather together by your experiences of not not gathering together. <laughs> <laughs> I, there is something too. I mean, it's what drew us in and still draws us in. I mean, I see, mm. I see the lovely pieces of it, but I mm. yeah, I would invite people who, if they're if they're uh, parenting transracially and uh, adoption or moving around, that it, that yes, there are some pretty cool things that the expat community brings to the table and some knowing. Mm. But 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 don't keep your blinders on about that. Yeah. My, yeah people were abs again. Children responded to my kid in this situation. Mm. Teachers responded. They see who's leading in communities around them, and yeah. who, the absence of people. Since status quo is well. Yeah. 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 That beautifully segues into what was going to be my last question to you, right. which was <laughs> is how as a white person can I leverage my privilege to actually help make you and your child's life the best possible? Oh. I know that's a very big No, question. no. I think, I mean, it's right. It is doing your work. It's finding other folks that are doing um, this work. It's raising anti-racist kids the best you can. Mm. It's taught and taking current events, I do some stuff on my Common Core Psychology Services um, page where I do a Friday uh, coffee and conversation and I will Mm -hmm. talk about current events that are happening in the world and how to talk to your kids about those, including those with race and Supreme Courts and George Floyd. I mean, all of this stuff, Mm. because that's oftentimes parents are frozen with the how. Yeah. Um, and I'm actually doing a talk about this at FIGT this year um, oh, you? <laughs> yeah, about, about this piece because Good. so often I think white people get, we are, we get paralyzed. We're not sure how we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to hurt people's mm. feelings. We, we, if we, you know, we're either angry that we shouldn't feel guilty or we feel terrible that we do. And so we don't want to talk about it. Mm. And, and yet we have to, I think whether you're parenting or whether you're a human working in the, in the world, you know, whatever your spheres of influence are, being able to start conversations and stay in them and even when they're uncomfortable and encourage yeah. people to read different media and, and to learn learn about yeah the do's and don'ts of questions for adoptive families and how to show up in allyship mm-hmm. and i mean there are so many ways if you're part of a school community be an ally so that the parents of the kids of color don't have to be the ones always bringing the issues yeah and ask how people are doing just ask what's your experience mm. like there are some days that are really 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 hard that mm. i would give everything in my being to take away um the judgment that my kid is already 
experienced. And we've talked, and I know we have to wrap up, but there are two quick things. We, I've talked so far, what's harder even than the judgment of white people of us is mm. the judgment of racial mirrors for my son. Yeah. The white people, like it's easy for me to write off the, the comments and not easy. It's still very painful, but I can categorize them in ignorance and lack of exposure. And yeah, that you can see reasons for it doesn't make it better, but yeah. You no, know, and yet, and yet there are lots of people of color who have very strong reactions to families mm. being separated. We can imagine, especially in the history of family separation. And so there's, I wish that I could find an easy place for my kid to land because, because you know, our home is culturally white and we, you know, I mean, he, he's going to have to figure out how to navigate the judgments of him because of Mm -hmm. what he hasn't been exposed to and because of what he has. And I think in terms of takeaway messages for parents is that this is, it's hard and it's beautiful and it's worth it. Like Mm -hmm. you, if we don't do the hard work, our kids end up mucking through it. And and we have to feel the discomfort of the judgment from black and brown and white people, knowing mm-hmm. we made this choice in a world that hasn't worked through all this stuff yet, and that mm-hmm. our kids need us to figure out how to stay in the discomfort if we're in communities of racial mirrors for our kids so that, that we don't run and hide from the hard parts of what race still does to families yeah. and individuals, and that we how to teach our kids to talk back one funny anecdote that I think you'll appreciate Kath but yeah so so the curiosity doesn't stop recently we were outside of a grocery store and uh, my preteen son and I and somebody came kind of rushing up to us excitedly and already we knew both of us sort of you know you're bracing <laughs> yeah and he says you know, like, oh my gosh you adopted you adopted you're not adopted family oh wow are you adopted like stares at my and my kid just sort of froze and I, after years of practice, having like signals about when to say stuff and when not to, <laughs> there was this pause, which is something else I really encourage parents to do. Come up mm. with a way to communicate with your kid about when they want you to speak up when somebody says something ridiculous. So anyway, there's this pause and he just looks, my son looks right at me. So I turned to the guy and I just said, you know, we're actually pretty private about our family story. Um <laughs> And it kind of paused there and, and then they turned red and like fumbled around even more embarrassingly and, and kind of walked off. And then my son, my son turned to me and he said, you know what, mom, next time I'm going to say, nah, I'm not adopted. She's just my off-brand bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell he's a teenager. You can tell he's into brands. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Which, which I, I love. love. That. I, I mean, you should, wear a t- you should get a t-shirt made. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> bodyguard. Would you like to design it? Seriously? <laughs> <laughs> I go, absolutely. I'm, absolutely. And Seriously. your child can, I'll, I'll give you both the, the first free one. <laughs> it was, I, and I think again, and that's probably a sweet, like, this is hard. I cry. I'm afraid. I am embarrassed. Uh, all of these things. I worry I'm not enough. And, and I build community around us and I read and I listen and I reach out to other folks on similar journeys and I, and I laugh. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I laugh and I love and we hug and I, 
you know, I'm like, I meant well, I'm trying. I, <laughs> I you know, the, some days I'm more successful uh, than others. And, um, and it's not, I think it's not a journey to take on lightly. And it's not, it's it, the, the tropes of, of this is a wonderful thing where our family will be an example of post-racial well, the whatever. Myths, yeah. And the, the myths are hard and they're a setup for everybody. They're a setup for parents as much as they are for adoptees. Uh, well, they no, the adoptees pay the ultimate price, but they're a setup yeah. for um, uh, parents as well. And so this is an invitation as an ally. Re- rethink some of the storylines around adoptions and mm. gratitude and evil birth first families and yeah. Uh, notice so that's what else you can do you can challenge the common tropes around adoption in general and recognize mm. that we've got to listen to to adoptees and and don't yeah ask mm. check in with your friends who are doing this find cool events happening in, in racial mirrors and and keep folks kid and yeah it's what comes through as you're as you're talking is just um never assume either never assume that you know someone's story and and how important it is to actually I guess for me it's also about allowing everybody the grace to be living their own life does that make sense that the kind of just allow people to be who they are and actually you don't you don't need to know someone else's business yeah if you want to then you need to check why you're asking yeah if you're not going to ask a mother and son of the same skin color that question why are you asking these two like that for me is is looking at some of those hard truths and your your own biases and examine your own thoughts really I think yeah absolutely and that's so many ways that applies and just living Mm. giving people room and noticing when you're responding to them in a way that that's that's loaded um and and connect with other people doing this work surge for people who want mm-hmm. to think about uh yeah standing up for racial justice is one the other one for people who are interested specifically with talking about uh, or kids the, the common cord stuff yeah i was going to ask how people can get in touch with you for more information essentially yeah common cord psychology services does the friday stuff that's on facebook um, my website is i'm sure it will be attached to this somewhere but just dr laura and Com. And then one other great resource is called Embrace Race. And they are on, you can find them on Facebook too. And they do lots oh, of fantastic. conversations about talking to kids about, about race as well. So um, there, it starts with the hard conversations and it starts yeah. with not fleeing from the discomfort. We have to be uncomfortable around yeah. this stuff to, to get through it. If we put our heads in the sand then then well we see what happens with that yeah absolutely so yeah. thank you for having me thank you so much um i look forward to hearing over the coming years more <laughs> wonderful stories about you being an off-brand bodyguard <laughs> i love how sharp your your child is in in the, the quick-witted thing but it also makes me sad about why that needs to be there and why how it's developed but I also love that it can be used to make a point and to make other people feel uncomfortable rather than the other way around yeah you develop lots of different skills yeah uh, for handling these situations but I wish there were fewer of them yeah absolutely Yeah. yeah well on that note thank you so much 
for joining me. Uh, I always appreciate talking to you and your honesty and talking about subjects that uh, some people find difficult. So if anyone would like to know any more information, I'll put in the show notes Laura's website and how you can follow more of her work and listen to her. Thanks, Kath. It's a pleasure. Thank you.